This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the Minefields, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Although, as I've been noting, we're not really doing that this week. Or are we? Or are we? Walid Ali is my name. (laughs) Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hi, Scott. Hey, Walid. We survived uh, last week with speech sufficiently intact for us to proceed with the show, Mm. uh, which is something of a benefit. I will say, however, looking at just surveying today's topic, that I'm glad this isn't a television show. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that leaves you in all sorts of issues, <laughs> dilemmas <laughs> that I pointing that out. myself yes. don't really have to struggle yeah. with. I've seen, hang on, I've seen you on the box. Yeah, yeah. And then I swore I'd never do it again. And Yeah, and then you do it. Well, I haven't for a while. Really? When did you swear you'd never do it again? Uh, 2013. And you haven't done it since 2013? I'm uh, sure I've seen you on television since then. I've done it once or twice since then, but not much. Okay. Well, you know what happens if you break an oath like that? Yeah, I know. It's true. It's true. Mm. I held my soul in my hands and I lost a little bit of it as soon as I well, sat in really? that chair. Yeah. Mm. Um, it is interesting, though. Uh, we were just saying off air, one of the great joys of doing this particular series over the course of the month of Ramadan is that we get to step back. I don't think we're being indulgent or irrelevant. I don't think we're sort of scratching an itch that nobody else really cares about by talking about things that interest us, but you know, don't really do it for anybody else. Um, it, it just strikes me that one of the things that we try to do when we set aside these episodes at this time of year, each year, is we try to create the space or the conditions of possibility in which every other show that we do over the course of the year can be discussed or can be put to air. In other words, this is that necessary little stepping back, that process of self-interrogation, of attentiveness to others, and opening ourselves up to the possibility of ideas, of perspectives, of encounters even, that may be uh, more agenda-driven episodes. We really need to talk about this this week. Don't really give us the possibility for. So, I mean, last, last week, we discussed the purification of language which is something, I mean, I don't know if it came through. Maybe our listeners can inform us. Um, There aren't many topics I feel more passionately about than that. Um, uh, Speech is just about the most morally consequential thing in which we engage. The descriptions that we use for others, the way in which we lacerate other people or else express our, our affection and our tenderness, these are things that stay with people forever. I'll just tell you, Willie, one of the worst experiences of my life, it was within, and, and, and I do mean this, I'm, I'm simply judging this by the fact that I think about it every two or three days. Uh, it was in my first few months, having come to the ABC, I had no experience in broadcasting, and I was thrown in the deep end, having to interview three very, very distinguished persons whose work I'd spent a great deal of time reading. They were all cramped together in a studio at at the BBC in London. And I had sort of drawn up the topic and, you know, we arranged them to be in the studio and and I did my best to make my way through it to be a good interlocutor and interviewer, but not to insert myself too much in the course of the conversation. They, um, They were terrific. They thought that the program was at an end. The mic was still hot. My headphones were still on, and they began saying everything that they thought was wrong with the way that I'd conducted that show. And, you know, Waleed, it has stuck with me ever since. I can tell you verbatim what they said. And, you know... Were they right? Yeah, absolutely they were right. But it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, And it was was worse for uh, eavesdropping in on someone else's words. It just, it, that's the sort of thing that reminds me that what we say and the lack of tact with which we say it can have extraordinary moral consequences in the lives of other people. But also, as we discussed at some length last week, the language that we use creates habits of looking. This was one of the really true, I think, monumental moral insights both of two of my favorite philosophers, Simone Weil and Iris Murdoch. 
that we learn to look by the language that we use, and our language is shaped by the way that we look. We grow by looking, and we sharpen our language by looking well, by attending well to other people. So there's something kind of nice, I think, about having done what we did last week, attending carefully to the language that we use and the spaces, the necessary spaces for silence, for not saying, for allowing huge pauses to exist so that the possibility of things that maybe aren't or that maybe need not be overwhelmed by what it is I'm about to say or by my need to impose myself upon a particular situation, the allowing for occasions of silence or for fewer words rather than more these create the conditions within which life-giving language, language as a form of moral encounter, uh, can in fact arise. And that also, as we're exploring this week, that then creates the conditions within which we can see better, within which we can look at proper objects of our gaze with a, with a degree of sharpness, with a certain attentiveness. But as I'm hoping you'll now pick up, we are living in an age of image saturation. So much so, I, I'm, I'm actually not sure you, you agree with this, but it strikes me that so many of these platforms that were meant to publish and circulate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of words every day, most of these platforms have now essentially given way to being essentially the distributor of hieroglyphs or of images like emojis, or of short-form little videos like either TikTok or YouTube, or, or little GIFs. It strikes me at every turn that words are receding because we feel that images carry most of either the affective value that we want to communicate, or else images are the only way of, of grabbing people's attention long enough to get them to, to look at something. It's, it's so interesting you say that, because I think you're right at the same time as being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't that usually so, the case? So that, yeah, well, I guess. I mean, and what I just said makes no sense, I guess. So let me explain. The idea of media, sorry, not media saturation, of mm. image saturation yeah. and of the moral consequences of that, I think, uh, I think that's true and I think it's real. I think it's urgent and I think we are far too complacent about it. But at the same time as that, I've had this thought over a long period of time now that I'm actually blown away with the amount of time people spend reading now because so much of online life does require reading. Mm. I, I get there are those elements that don't, which you talk, you've spoken about, but the person who is spending inordinate amounts of time on Twitter or Facebook is reading a lot. The person who is scanning the news for that which is either important or right through to that which is sensational and merely confirms their prejudices. They're reading a lot. Um, my concern is not so much that people aren't reading. My concern is with what they're reading. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't exclude myself from that. I don't mean it to come across like that. What, what we're reading. Yeah. But so can I just say probably the one little additional, and I, I think you're absolutely right, the one thing that I'd add to that is anybody who spent any time in the industry that you and I live in uh, who have seen the amount of time that people on average spend on, say, an average news story gives one... Yeah, the skimming thing. Yeah, yeah it gives one the very clear sense that I'm not... I think there are lots of words being looked at. I'm not wholly <laughs> right. certain how much reading there, in fact, is. So looking at words yeah. as distinct from reading, <laughs> yeah. this is a... Right. No, I think that's true. But what's interesting, I think, is they tend to go from looking at one set of words to looking at another very quickly. Right? Mm, that's, so that's absolutely right. It, yeah. It's not the same as um, I pick up a newspaper, I look at it for 20 minutes or whatever, I put it away, I go about my day. It's, it's a constant bombardment of words. Mm. And then if you are someone who's engaged online, whatever that word really means, but you know, you, you could be involved in some kind of internet thread about something on could be Reddit or it could be Twitter or whatever. You're doing a lot of reading, actually. And you're doing a lot of writing as well. Mm. So there are actually skills of quite extraordinary literacy that are required for all this at the same time as they don't seem to heighten our literacy because I think of the, I think the nature of what's, what's being read. Now, it's possible that what I'm describing 
is of a different internet age, you know, internet 1.0, internet 2.0, and less 3.0, I think, are we up to? Or what, I'm not even sure what 3.0 uh, denotes. But we have moved into a much more visual... Like, even if you were just to look at social media, or even news websites, I mean, mm. they're, they're much more visual than they used to be, right? Yes, it's it, true. There's, there's video everywhere. There's, there are picture, you see the picture before you see the headline very often. Um, but do you also know the way, for instance, that paragraphs in a story that you go into, the paragraphs are getting shorter and shorter, and the paragraphs are becoming increasingly interspersed with either images that are vaguely related to the story or, you know, yep. it mentions, for instance, the opposition leader, therefore there has to be a picture of the opposition leader. So it's even yes. the images themselves are broken up and interspersed with images to such a degree that anything like sort of flow or continuity of argument is almost ruled out in advance. Yeah, yeah, which is something I've definitely noticed because mm. when you break every sentence into a paragraph, it becomes very difficult. I actually find it becomes harder to follow. Yeah, I don't know why right. people do that. Um, because we're looking at words instead of reading. That's yeah. why. This is, it just demands can, can more I suggest that? This is the imagification of words. This is the turning of words into images and the images of those words. I mean, this is one of the reasons, for instance, we have the hyperbolization of language the overly affective nature of so much of the online writing, the prevalence, the ubiquity of the word impact, for instance, we've, we've talked about on other occasions I won't get into again. You can look at it at a glance. You can take it in at a glance and you know what that quote-unquote paragraph <laughs> or that isolated sentence, what it is it's meant to convey. Can, can I just mention just one really quick thing? And you can leave it on the floor or you can take it up. <laughs> okay. Even the use of words that you were describing before, the fact that we're writing so much and the fact that we're reading so much. There is this remarkable book from about six, seven years ago by Sherry Turkle called Reclaiming Conversation. She's a psychoanalyst and a, a tech uh, ethicist. She was alarmed by the way that she could not get her students to front up in her office for professor-student interviews. Instead, she said, they insisted on emailing because by writing, they wanted to manicure. They wanted to confect or present the best possible versions of themselves, which they did not feel they would be able to do in person. In other words, even these forms of reading and writing, and I'm saying this because I'm hoping we can pick it up later. These are forms of reading and writing without the possibility of moral encounter. They are the presentation of words as a way of standing in for the reality, the moral reality of another person, which is to say it's the commodification of a certain form of communication rather than communication as something that brings two people authentically together in a moment of inherent risk. Have you read, um, this reminds me of this brilliant little dissection that Scruton does on this where oh, he, yes. <laughs> he talks about conversation um, in person as being something where neither party can claim sovereignty. Yeah, that's right. And where each party is taking a risk because at every moment in that interaction, you're monitoring for responses and you have to weigh the consequences of those mm. responses and so on. But you don't have sovereignty. You can't just end the conversation. Mm. Whereas once you have it mediated via something like an email or a text message or whatever, then what actually happens is you distort this relationship, you create something else that isn't really a relationship because you have total sovereignty. You can just close the tab and that's it. The mm -hmm. other person may not even know you've done it and there is nothing they can do about that. Just no. Whereas in a, in a physical conversation, even if you want to get up and walk away, you have to do that. Mm. You have to do it in front of them. But this is, there's something that, so I think that notion of sovereignty and the claiming or the reclamation of sovereignty in these sort of virtual exchanges, I think is a really interesting and important one. And I think it underscores, or it helps us understand perhaps why it is that people, um, there are a lot of people, and, and this is probably observable mostly generationally, but not exclusively so, that, who just seem only comfortable texting. Yeah. So the minute it's a phone call, it becomes, there's, there's something abrasive about mm, it. Or threatening. And I, yeah, intrusive, and I suspect... Yeah. What's probably happening there is the loss of sovereignty. Hmm, interesting. The idea that we should be claiming sovereignty in the course of conversation, I think, is a very uh, suspect notion. I do um, think, there's, I think maybe, there's maybe something else, though, going on. And, I mean, even just when you were talking about there's, there is no sovereignty within a, within a genuine interpersonal conversation, I mean, just think, Waleed, 
And, and again, I mean, I'm not bringing this up just for no reason or because I feel like it. I think this is an integral part of what it is we're talking about. Think about those moments when you're talking with somebody. You may or may not know them intimately, but you say something and there's that flash of recognition that just darts instantaneously across their face. It's indescribable, but it's communicable. Mm. Or that yep. moment where you say something and you didn't realize it, but you said something wrong, and there's that barely disguised wince of pain. Conditions of moral encounter are conditions in which those forms of interpersonal communication can be conveyed, can be received, can be responded to or ignored. And all of those other forms of mediated conversation that you described, I mean, to some extent, you could say that it's conveyed by, by voice or by tone. Well, that's also why people do emojis, right? Yes, well, yeah, it is. It is. That's part of the. That's part of the reason. To to add a degree of kind of tonal inflection onto words that might yeah, not otherwise. Yeah, and, and to remove certain tonal ambiguity. Yeah, but anyway, we, let's not do the emoji. We're not going to do the emoji. Show again. <laughs> okay, can I just make one quick observation Please. before I come back to where we were? I think the other thing that makes me think that we actually read a lot and write a lot now is texting. Hmm. When you consider the volume of words that we produce now in the course of a day, it seems far more than at any other time in my life. You can have an argument about whether those words are sort of inane or not, but, but we are doing it a lot. So I don't think it's purely that images saturate our lives, but it is also that images saturate mm. our lives. Perhaps I would put it that way. And I do think that's a problem. But here I want to defer to you because I know you're far better at articulating this than I am. I would just say a couple of things about the saturation of images in our lives. Mm, One please. is we have, to return to a concept that I've just used, um, we have no sovereignty over what those images are. We might pretend we do, but actually either they are assaulting us in the form of you know, visual advertising on billboards or whatever, or they're assaulting us in the form of social media feeds that are usually curated around an algorithm we don't control. Mm. I don't use TikTok, but I understand from people who do that it, stuff just comes at you. It's not, you don't even necessarily see only people you follow, etc. Mm. So things just will come at you. I have looked at, and here I'm, I make a very conscious decision not to be involved in social media. So my experience with it is limited, but I have, you know, seen the Instagram interface and I, I've observed it and the way in which it throws suggestions at you, for example, of people that you're not following or, or whatever, or you open the app and there's just a bunch of images that might be there. At least that's, that was the case when I last looked at it. These are things whereby images are not there for a particular reason to support something that is directed at some important purpose, mm -hmm. but they are just inflicted upon you. That's just what happens, right? The billboards on the back of buses. If you're stuck in a traffic jam, you can't avoid... See, right Now, the, all that is completely inconsequential if you think that the presence of images is more or less neutral or perhaps to the good. I just have this feeling, and here I rely on your articulation, that it's not. Mm -hmm. That there is something imaginatively stunting about images, that there is something even morally compromising about them, because they work their way into your heart. Hmm. And they can, in some way, depending on what they are, of course, they can harden it or soften it. They can, they can callous it. They can do all kinds of things. They have, perhaps in a drip-by-drip -drip effect, a kind of formative action upon the character, upon the soul, upon one's moral formation. And here is the bit where I think you quote, dozens of philosophers who've made this point deeply. Is that that point, is it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, look, let's, let's begin not with philosophers, but with theologians. I mean, one of, the, one of the ideas that I think underscores just about everything that we want to say over the course of this conversation is that there are good reasons why in certain traditions, particularly uh, the Islamic tradition and in Judaism, that there is a proscription against the production of and against the viewing of certain images of certain objects. It's not necessarily, depending on how hard or soft you want to go in certain traditions, it's not necessarily every. And it's certainly not that neither of these traditions have strong senses of aesthetics, much less of aesthetic beauty, quite the contrary. 
but it's more that there are certain things that are so beyond the realm of sight that have to exert a degree of attraction on an increasingly purified imagination that as soon as you imageify them, as soon as you turn them into idols, in other words, you are so debasing the object that's meant to be represented that that then has um, not directly a corrupting effect on the moral imagination or upon, say, the eyes of the soul, to use a form of language that was often used, but rather that image, like you just said, works its way like a splinter into the soul, such that wherever, whenever you think about this ultimate object of the good or of the beautiful, what gets conjured to mind is this fundamentally debased object. Do you know, I had a, a friend who made this point using Lord of the Rings as an example. <laughs> so to read Lord of the Rings is... That, that could have been me, actually. <laughs> it, could have, it could have been you, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't, it wasn't in this case. To read Lord of the Rings is to enter a world of imagination about yeah. these characters and who they are. The minute you see the film... It's gone. That's right. There is a tyranny that's imposed upon it. Gandalf can only look like that. Mm. Mm. You cannot imagine... Gandalf in any other way. And you're right to point to the iconoclastic nature of the, the Jewish and Islamic traditions in that regard. Certainly in the context of the Islamic tradition, and I think it's true in the Jewish tradition as well, the fear is of idolatry. And so particularly anything that connotes that which is meant to be sacred or holy, this is a, this is a really dangerous area because what you end up doing is replacing something of essence with something that's an icon. Mm, that's right and then submitting or sanctifying that icon. And, of course, in the Islamic tradition, there's very, this very strong sense that whatever you imagine, anything you can imagine God to be, God isn't. Hmm. Uh, there, there, is, there is nothing like him. So, therefore, any pictorial representation immediately becomes a problem, which is why Islamic art veered into calligraphy and hmm. those sorts of non-pictorial elements. You know, incredible aesthetic, but not pictorial. Now, um, because he, it unleashes, it, what it unleashes is, I, I would say, a more vast imagination. Yes, I but, think that's right. But this is different, um, but a restrained one as well. This is the thing. We're not to go around trying to imagine God into existence you know, because we know that we will just make it a projection of ourselves mm. and then whatever we imagine will be that. This, of course, stands in contradistinction to the, the Christian tradition, which is much more pictorial tradition. Yes, that's right. Uh, in which the communication of God and the communication of religious stories was done through pictures overwhelmingly. Now, there, and so, there is a difference, though. And, and look, I, I do think, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily popular for saying this, but I do think that Christianity on the whole has actually been far too promiscuous, far too profligate in its use of and its reliance upon images and, and in the way that it saturates forms of worship and religious gathering with images. Um, these images have tended to an overwhelming degree, been projections of whatever it is that particular community wants to believe about the transcendent uh, or about the visage of Jesus Christ or, or whatever. But there is a twist. There is a twist that I've always found really interesting. And it comes in those forms of Christian art that have tried to depict suffering, especially divine suffering. Um, I think here uh, sort of preeminently of Matthias Groenwald's Eisenheim altarpiece, which which portrays a kind of a heavily bodied, uh, an extremely carnally kind of overdetermined picture of Christ with green gangrenous skin with pockmarks all over him, sort of draped um, heavily on a cross. And you find out gradually that the this particular depiction of Christ is the depiction of a Christ who is afflicted by a plague, by a disease, uh, the care of which, the care of those suffering from that disease, was the purpose of the monastery in Eisenheim. In other words, by viewing the picture of Christ, you are seeing a picture of capital D dignified suffering on the part of those patients as well who gathered for care in that place. And so there's something interesting that, about that particular depiction of suffering, that it doesn't, it's not pornographic in the sense that it draws you so deeply into the picture 
that you kind of appropriated or you, you, you somehow get fascinated or, or even distressed by the suffering that's being depicted. Instead, by meditating in a particular space, on a particular image, depicting a particular form of suffering, you then by have your eyes so shaped, so cleansed, so peaked that you see those, and presumably those who gathered in the chapel to view this this icon, this vast mm. painting, they were then the ones that attended to the people in their rooms. So you then see the flesh and blood suffering with eyes that have been cleansed or clarified by the meditation on this particular version of divine suffering. In, in, in that sense, it's an image. I don't know quite else how to put it this. Way. It's designed to uplift. Yeah. Well, no, no, not quite uplift. The image mediates the possibility of genuine moral encounter. The image obviates the possibility of merely physical revulsion. Sorry, yes, that's what I meant by the okay. uplifting. Okay. The uplifting of the status of the, of the person for whom you're caring, yeah. So um, I mean, I what, you... what is kind of interesting there, though, uh, that strikes me as so utterly different from so many of the other images with which we are assaulted today of other people. If there's a political figure that you don't like, what's the image? that's going to keep popping up on the news site that also is ideologically opposed to them, it's going to be one that portrays them as sneering or as buffoonish or as wincing or as embarrassed. And I think that one of the things that images do is they cultivate conditions of contemptuousness. The, the images that well, we... they can. Well, yes, yes, they, they can. And I think predominantly the way that we now use them, the way we now consume them, is they shape the way we view others rather than facilitating or mediating the possibility of genuine moral encounter. And I would suggest, and I'll shut up after this, that it's not just the image as such, but it's also what you're prepared to do with it, to the extent to which you're allowed, you're prepared to sit with it, to stay with it, to meditate mm -hmm. on it. And um, what it awakens within you. Yes, that's, that's right. I think that's right. Which is why I think something like pornography bears a lot of thinking about, because of what it awakens. Yeah. Um, all right. We might get to that later in the show. We this might. is The Minefield, though, for now. You can listen to the show on RN, as you might be doing, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, or also by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is one of our favorites. I mean, she's so much one of our favorites that she appeared on last during last year's Ramadan series, both at the beginning and the end of the series. And she was so good, we thought, how could we not have her back? Rebecca Roselle Stone is professor of philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you so much, Scott and Waleed. It's good to be speaking with you right now. So let's, let, let's begin with a slight... Uh, sidestep. I, I mean, it's it's not a sidestep, but I think it's another way of getting into the same conversation. You you can't read much moral philosophy. It might be Plato, it might be Al Ghazali or Thomas Aquinas, or more recently, it might be Iris Murdoch, Simone Weil, Stanley Cavell. You can't read much moral philosophy without being struck by the fact that forms of, let's call it moral debility, the inability to see someone in their full humanity, the inability to view the world um, in a manner that's generous and tender, the ability to empathize, the ability to feel compassion, the ability to reason well, the ability to speak well, all of these things that might count as either a moral virtue or moral capacity or moral debility, they're often described in terms of visual impairment. I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind is Stanley Cavell's description of the inability of one person to see or to recognize the common humanity in another person as being a person in a condition of soul blindness. Simone Weil famously referred to the practice or the process of attentiveness, of sort of fixed attentive devotion onto the moral reality of another person, as did Iris Murdoch. Why is it that vision, that sight, seems to be so clearly or intimately associated with the moral life? 
Well, I think there's always been a primacy placed on vision in at least the history of Western philosophy, right? It's it's the metaphor for knowing, understanding, um, and in a more violent sense, appropriating and, and consuming. But even, you know, if we think about Plato, for instance, in, in the Phaedrus, he describes um, how our desire for truth and goodness begins with the eyes, right? We gaze upon beauty that sparks, you know, this kind of internal eros, erotic drive. Um, as he puts it, the wings of the soul start fluttering in anticipation of, you know, the encountering of true eternal beauty. And, and this kind of seeing elevates the soul because it reminds us of what's eternal, what, what endures. And so I think that gets carried along throughout our history of philosophy with this notion that, yeah, to really... Um, be open to another person, to empathize with them is a kind of seeing them um, and openness to them and, and understanding. But obviously that has its its negative side too, because, you know, as someone like Levinas would say, vision is a kind of domination at times, like the insistence that someone stand in our light, that they be known to us, that they be fully revealed and transparent to us. Well, that can't happen, right? I mean, there is there is mystery in, in other people, especially. And so I think I've gotten away from your question, but I, I think it's really interesting that you're right. There has been this emphasis placed on vision as a way of, of connecting and having a moral attunement to others. But clearly, vision can also be um, a violent means of of appropriation and can assumption. I, can I just pick up on one thing, Willie, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Is that, is that all right? Of course. So I mean, this is really interesting because the insistence that something or someone present themselves wholly to be known. I mean, your description then is to stand in the light, to sort of open themselves up to our lucid gaze. I mean, you're absolutely right. That is a form of ocular violence. I mean, there really is no other description, I think. I mean, part of the moral reality of another person is the depth of their personhood. There are things that are hidden. There are things that not only cannot be known, but the very process of moral knowing is the grappling with, trying to understand that which cannot be known. In the example that I brought up with Waleed before, speaking with another person and there's that flash of recognition or the one that really always affects me, the barely perceptible wince of pain. It seems to me that what makes that powerful is that it's nearly concealed. Whereas if you think about, I mean, this may be tasteless and I'm certainly not meaning it to be, but... The pornographic demand is that everything is visible. Everything is available and consumable. Mm -hmm. uh, everything can be seen. Whereas the conditions of moral encounter, and I think the conditions of the cultivation of the eyes, is wrestling with shadow without wanting or insisting that everything suddenly steps into the light. Wrestling with what is unknowable, trying to allow the other person to offer up responses rather than demanding kind of full exposure in advance. Does that, is that a good way of proceeding or do you think there's still sort of serious drawbacks to that? I definitely think that that's right. I mean, therein lies their humanness, as you're saying. Um, it's that subtlety that, you know, sense that there's always more to give, always more to be revealed to us, but on the other's time, not mm. via mm. our own demanding and not via our own, you know, illumination of them through or, or attempts at illumination. But that's that's right. That subtlety is what I think is really has that depth and, and is what we should be morally attuned to. And, and as a side thought, it made me think about um, this may seem like a bizarre comparison, but the difference between like British comedy and American comedy, where to me, British comedy is so subtle and it's so much in, you know, character and facial expressions and little gestures that you can almost miss. But a lot of American comedy is so didactic and it just tells you like, here's where you need to laugh. <laughs> and, it's you know, I, I less find so, that... don't you think, Rebecca? I feel like, Maybe... I mean, I don't want to turn this into a comedy episode, but... Uh... 
I don't know. There's a new genre of sort of hyper-realist type comedy where things are quite subtle, even in America. I, th I think so because we've been copying the Brits, maybe, like right, with The Office okay. um, and some of these shows. So I think we're getting better, but but it makes me realize, yeah, the extent to which you lose that humanity and that that sense of a true ability to connect when when everything is so staged and illuminated and and given an explicit, maybe even pornographic kind of ways. Um, so so mm. I, I appreciate the the philosophy of the shadows when it comes to thinking about moral vision. And there's a great book by a Japanese philosopher, uh, Junichiro Tanizaki, who wrote In Praise of Shadows. Mm. And he talks about the Japanese aesthetics and how there is an appreciation for, for more darkness and obscurity and shadows patina and not the shininess that Westerners seem to prefer. For instance, when, when you all were talking about the kind of speech that would be uh, morally uplifting, he, he has this thing, he says, Japanese music, so thinking about sound, is a music of reticence, of atmosphere. We prefer in conversation the soft voice, the understatement, the pauses, and goes on to contrast that with how, again, Westerners think it's about being as loud as possible, filling all of the, the airwaves and the voids. And in terms of texting, again, when you all were talking about this, I was thinking about even though texting is using words, how often are they in all caps where it's a kind of screaming or this imagification of, of the words. It's barely conversation or language at that point, I think. I use all caps in two situations, I think. One is when I'm saying happy birthday to someone, and the other <laughs> is around an exciting sporting result. I think that's about it. And neither Scott nor I use emojis. We, we keep returning to this theme of things being explicit, which means I suppose we have to talk about sexualized imagery at some point, but not quite yet, because I want to lay the the groundwork for that, Rebecca. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections on this idea, the way in which that what we see, and here I mean images, but I also just mean what we see in the world. Mm. I mean, I don't think we call them images, would we? But just the sight, the things that come in through our faculty of sight, the way in which they pierce the heart. I, I'm, you know, I've got a, a friend of mine who studied architecture for a long time. And one of the most arrest. I don't even know if he remembers saying this to me. One of the most arresting things he ever told me is the, I was going to say neurological, but maybe it's deeper than that. It might even be spiritual impact of human beings observing and being in an environment that has a lot of natural materials in it, right? Soil, wood, grass, trees, other forms of greenery, sky, whatever. The impact that has on us, how we feel and what our state is compared to the stuff that makes our cities, you know, steel, concrete, glass, uh, is apparently quite profound. We actually feel more agitated, it seems, in these artificial environments where we use these artificial materials. Now, the only way we can really perceive that, it seems to me, unless there's some other kind of sense going on, is through sight, is through the faculty of sight, that we can look at... Th there's a reason people like to stand on a cliff and look out at an ocean, and it, it creates something within us. It, I don't know, it, it turns on certain faculties, maybe faculties of reflection or whatever, what you might call higher faculties. And yet if we contrast that with looking at things that are designed to stimulate, that is, they are designed to appeal to our baser faculties then that leaves in the end the sort of long-run remnants in our souls, in our, in our states of being. And here, perhaps to get too quickly to the example of pornography, I think of those studies that talk about the way that people who use pornography often end up becoming just generally more aggressive in their demeanour or whatever, because the, the question is, what through sight, what is being fed here? And I, I wonder if you've got any reflections sort of in that area because this is, I find it a difficult thing to talk about. And I suspect a lot of our audience right now, if they're still with us, are finding it a difficult thing to listen to because it's not something we ever think about in our society. We sort of take images as a given and act as though they are neutral and their impact upon us is neutral, but also our interaction with them is neutral. 
Right. I I definitely think there's an effect on us bodily, sensibly, um, in terms of our relationships, our sense of alienation from the world and from other people. And of course, as we've been saying, right, more than ever now, we're inundated with images. Oftentimes, these images are coming from the news as potential evidence of crimes, oppression, war. So our psychic world becomes really colonized by what we might call this image industry. But I think then there's this question of scale and degree, right? When does becoming responsibly informed, for instance, about the news, turn into a kind of voyeuristic doom scrolling that then has this effect on us where we we carry that disposition, I think, into the world in a way that makes us less... um, we take things less seriously. It has a kind of flattening effect on us as we become like a full spectator, not one who is sensibly encountering the world, but viewing everything as a potential photograph or image Mm -hmm. or for our entertainment. And so I do think there's, you know, thinking about fasting um, since it's the Ramadan series, but is there a kind of fasting for vision that that might be helpful here. And and I think if not fasting, at least we could think about how we might attune our vision differently when it comes to these images so that we're not becoming so alienated from ourselves and each other. Even uh, the idea of, of fasting of the eyes is interesting, right? Because we, I think we live in a culture where we tend to use things, use phrases like you cannot look away mm. from mm. X or certain things are eye-catching or whatever. But the, the you cannot look away thing is interesting because on the one hand, we all know what that means and we've all experienced that thing. And that idea that this is not something I should look at or this is something that is horrible to look at, like a car crash, but I cannot look away. There's a kind of resignation in that though, isn't there? It seems like what's gone from that is the idea that we might want to look but shouldn't at something. I, can you think of an example in popular culture where people would generally agree that there is something you might really want to look at but shouldn't. I I find it hard to think of examples, which perhaps, if I'm right about that, speaks to a certain ethos that that undergirds it or perhaps a a certain heedlessness when it comes to paying attention to what what it is that we look at and draw in to ourselves. Hmm. Can I pick up something there? I might just give you a second longer to think, Rebecca. Well, I can do the reset in the meantime, or you if can do you like. Since I've stumped everybody, let me just remind everyone, this is The Mindfield. Valid Ali is my name. My co-host is Scott Stevens, and we're joined today by Rebecca Roselle Stone, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Of course, I say, say stumped. I might have just said nothing of any value. So, Scott, proceed. I mean, this, is, this for me really begins getting immensely complicated. And it's complicated by the fact that we are living at the end of a decades-long erosion of the capacities of the eyes. There, there's nobody in this world that's kind of taught me more about the moral capacities and the moral dangers of photographs and images than Susan Sontag. Um, she's sort of the, the great third of this triumvirate of Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch, and Susan Sontag. Uh, you know, in her great sort of 1977 book on photography, she analyzed, to my mind, in a manner that's nearly peerless, that images, photographs have been invested with a kind of moral quality. This gives you a sliver of the world. This brings an experience far away to you you're able to experience it. You're becoming more informed by viewing it. And yet she pointed out that the avalanche, the cascade, the surfeit of images ends up having the effect of blurring our capacity to read them. So we simply move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And even when there's one that is genuinely morally affecting, then it becomes something more like a shock It becomes something that stuns us or that renders us speechless or that kind of whips up emotions, but we have no idea what it is that we ought to really do with it. So, I mean, part of her great aesthetic labor as a cultural critic was to teach us how to read images. And I always loved the fact that she never, ever, ever reproduced images in any of her books 
on photography or on reading images. We need to, we need to be able to read them. And I think what that begins to get to is that, you know, Walid and Rebecca, you were both talking before about kind of the prevailing aesthetic. Byung-Chul Han, the great Korean-German philosopher, has also done something about the way that our aesthetics have become debased to the extent that we love smooth and metallic surfaces. We like marks on the skin, but only if they've been put there deliberately. In other words, not blemishes or imperfections. We prefer surfaces that are stripped clean and sterile. We prefer skin that has no hair. Our, our predominant aesthetic is light and smooth and curved and wholly the product of our own making. Whereas things that really do classify as beautiful, as arresting to the eyes, as attention-grabbing, in the sense that Simone Weil might use the term attention. In other words, attention that decenters the self and that almost makes us bow before what it is that we've seen in awe or in humility or in amazement. These are the things that have almost disappeared wholly from our capacity to read images and to understand ourselves as beings that have an aesthetic sense. And I just wonder, you know, Rebecca, you kind of intimated at this before, Maybe it's not that there's anything wrong with images per se. Maybe it's not even the fact that there are simply so many of them. But we've become incapable. We've become, to some extent, aesthetically blind or calloused in the way that we view images. Because for those images that really ought to arrest us, that ought to stop us in our tracks, we don't surround that image with the necessary space and time and silence, and fasting, in other words, refusing to scroll through to the next one, we don't linger, we don't attend, we simply move on with all the horrible residual feelings that go along with it. In, in other words, I, I wonder if there's the kind of ethical come aesthetic debility that surrounds so much of what it is we're talking about. I think absolutely. And and your citing of Han is perfect there because I was also thinking, and, and I think he mentions this, how our technologies like the skin of our tablets and smartphones are also smooth yes. and glossy. And, you know, and so we're viewing something like a naughty, rough oak tree through these smooth tablets. And what is that doing to our understanding and relationship to that natural world there, I think, as, as you're suggesting, we need a kind of discipline and practice when it comes to viewing images. It's not that images in and of themselves are evil, but the degree to which we receive them now, the, the scale where it's overwhelming, all-consuming, we have to develop new modes of encountering those images so that we're we're able to parse and we're able to make fine distinctions and understand the nuances. And I mean, I have some ideas about how we might start to do that differently. Um, one might be, yeah, simply less mediation, less blue light, more embodied presence. And of course, that would be doing away with images in some sense. But I think we don't have to completely exorcise the images from our lives if we're also in touch with the real. And I think it's not just about vision, but about using all of our senses when we're in front of something like whether it's a tree or a cat or another person, really being able to hear. Sometimes maybe it's about tasting, touching. I have to say one thing I appreciate about our conversations on the minefield is that, you know, it's weird to say this, but that I cannot see either of you. Hmm. There's something liberating about that for me. I'm not self-conscious. I'm able to just sort of look up at the ceiling and think and and listen in ways that I, I don't often feel talking to people, even in person. But, but the point there is, again, I think we lose the importance of these other senses when we are so visually predominant in our culture. But we might also learn to look from new angles and in different kind of lights, you know, less artificial, less electric light, uh, more candlelight. And something that I think her name is Sherry Tishman calls slow looking, that we can, you know, slow down the pace, we can linger over the things that we're gazing out and not just scan headlines or images quickly so that we have quick anecdotes for something, but 
but allowing things to really affect us deeply so that we don't become so amnesiac about what we've just witnessed, but where we can have a real meaningful response. Because that's my sense of the trouble that people have is what's the correlation between our witnessing of all of these images and, and the praxis? It oftentimes feels like there's there's not a response. And so then it feels like doom scrolling, right? I feel impotent. What am I doing? I'm just reading and looking at images of, of Ukraine and these other atrocities and and what of it? Mm-hmm. So I think slowing down, letting letting things register with us, focusing on fewer images perhaps, using more of our senses can lead us to more meaningful and, and practical results. Perhaps. The, yeah, no, I think that's a really important observation. And I was thinking about the where you were saying you're glad you can't see us. And I know exactly what you mean because it does, it facilitates thought in a slightly different way. Mm. But there is something about the the image of someone becoming well-known. Like it, it increases fame and it increases recognition. of. But it, but it also does something else to them that makes them somehow seem less. Like I was just thinking, here's a thought experiment. Scott, you might enjoy this. If we had like lots and lots of video of Aristotle speaking, or Socrates or Plato, or any, any, what would we think of them? Like, what would they become? I mean, maybe they would become nothing different because they're not reality TV content in the way that the Kardashians are or something like that. But I do wonder that they might become Kardashianified or something, that, you know, they, they, would, they would become something different because a different element to them, a whole different dimension to them is presented, indeed foregrounded to us. That's just so different from the legacy that, they have left behind in the world where we we don't have images of them. Yeah. I've got really nothing immediately to say to that. Really? I I thought you would be all over. Well, I mean, what I'd like to say is we would discover immediately their fallibility, their humanness. Um, I mean, there are people much closer to us. There's no audio of Simone Weil. There's a very, very little bit of video of Iris Murdoch. I mean, some of the most disappointing experiences of my life have been meeting people that I've been reading for years and then encountering (laughs) them. And, I mean, the fallible ones are fine. It's the ones that are assholes that you just think, I I, I can never (laughs) read that work the same way again. So, I mean, I think there's there's something there. But, um, yeah, yeah. I think people of different generations might see the video differently too. I mean, maybe we would view Aristotle speaking in a like, well, that's interesting, you know, and and maybe pick out certain particularities. But my students, I think this TikTok generation, they would find immediately his shticks. They would find something that he would become known for, maybe appearance-wise laugh about it. It would become entertaining to them. And I don't think it's an accident that more and more students seem to want to gravitate toward um, videos and PowerPoints in class that they say that helps them learn. And I'm not so sure. I think it it feeds a certain kind of desire that they have, but I don't know that that's the kind of learning I'm trying to facilitate. Hmm. Well, I think we've concluded the minefield will never be released as video. Uh, Scott probably has had conversations with people at the ABC about plans for such things. It's going to be hard for us to go back uh, or, or to embrace anything like that. Rebecca, thank you very much for letting us reach that conclusion, if nothing else, but um, also for your contribution to this conversation. It's been, as always, invaluable. Oh, thank you. Rebecca Rosell stone Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week for the final in our Ramadan series. Okay, now everybody stay exactly where they are. Uh-oh. We're going to do a little podcast extra. Oh. Um, Waleed, Rebecca, this is getting nostalgic, Waleed. It's going back to the old days when we used to have podcast extras. This is just a little one. We didn't get to it, and I think we need to. I'm going to ask you both, is there any place in a time like ours for the language and for the moral value of the language of obscenity? In other words, certain things that simply not only should not happen, but having happened, should not be depicted, that should not happen fictionally, that should not be brought into the light and consumed 
non-fictionally. There's that moment, I'm not sure if you both know it, in J.M. Kutzia's novel, Elizabeth Costello, where this aging Australian novelist reads a book by actually a real author named Paul West, uh, describing the torture, the humiliation of several old German men, part of the Wehrmacht, who uh, tried to assassinate Hitler. The depiction in that book that Elizabeth Costello describes of their naked, limp, hanging bodies, descriptions that remove any dignity from them, she says the word that wells up within her, that becomes a kind of talisman, is obscene. This should never be depicted. This should never be viewed. Okay, it's viewed in imagination, in literature, through, through description. But I'm just wondering, have we reached the point, given all the things that appear on our screens, all the things that are available to us, fictionally and non-fictionally, have we reached the point where we need to revive recover, perhaps, the language, the moral language of obscenity? Um, I think so. Given, given your description, I would say that there are some things that we don't need to see, that don't need to be brought to light. That is, details of, of tortures, atrocities, things like that. I mean, we need to know about them, certainly generally, but when you get into the grotesque, I, I agree that I think there can be a dehumanizing of the victim um, or the subject in a way that right it doesn't maintain their dignity. Oh, I'm still forming my thoughts on that. What about a corruption of the soul? I mean, are there some things, no. even if fictionally, having seen it, you think, my God, that that has no place in the recesses of my imagination. I struggle with that just because of um, thinking of Simone Weil here when she says, you know, a, a test of, of what is real is that it's rough, not pleasurable. And so insofar as something has existed, something has actually happened to someone, I don't know that it, I don't know that it corrupts the soul to see it, but it, my concern is more with what it signifies about the subject being, mm, okay. um, being tortured or, or what have you. Mm, interesting. Mm. I mean, I think we've reached a point where most people don't feel comfortable saying something is obscene and shouldn't be viewed because that is immediately associated with a kind of puritanism or... A censoriousness, yeah. Or something, yeah. Yeah. And I can see the impulse there. Like, I can see there is something being pursued there that isn't entirely trivial, but I also think that, I mean, has, has there ever been a, a culture that hasn't regarded certain things as obscene and not fit for viewing? Uh, up to this point in history, no. I think ours I is think getting so. very close. Ours is getting close to that. I mean, this kind of takes us back into the pornography discussion a little bit, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but I, I would even go, say, to something like Reservoir Dogs or Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, films, uh, I've seen the latter of those. I don't... Films whose depiction of torture... Yeah. See, I, yeah, yes. I, well, that's funny you say that because I was thinking a little bit about that. I was thinking, okay, so what about the sort of um, narco dramas that, yeah, that I watch where they you know, Breaking Bad might be an example, um, but there are far worse. And and it's interesting because I think we tend to assess those things in relation to the viewer, the way the viewer. The reason the viewer has for watching this, I think, informs our judgment as to whether or not this is appropriate. So if we have a viewer who is watching this wincing, understanding the dramatic impact or the relevance of it and the, the device that's being used here, okay, we might go, oh, well, that's fine, that's art. But if you imagine a viewer watching these things and just simply delighting in watching the torture scene because they just like watching torture, we would immediately say that something obscene is going on. Mm. But I think what's happening there is... We're making that an intersubjective thing yeah, rather right. than an obje that's, objective thing. So no right. one would say, or no one, very few people would say the scene itself is obscene. Oh, wow. They would say what's obscene is the relationship between the scene and the viewer hmm. in that case. But that's an interesting and potentially dangerous path to walk down. Yeah, isn't I, it? Agree. Because I agree. Because if you keep viewing these things, you eventually inculcate 
something where there is a kind of aesthetic to mm. to these things. And particularly if they hit some kind of reptilian desire to come back to the first episode in the series, right? And that's where I think the pornography thing is is connected to that mm. discussion. Rebecca, I last agree word? with that. Yeah, I agree with what Walid said. And I guess the other thing I worry about is if we bring a notion of obscenity back, at least in the U.S., you know, with the religious right, I'm concerned about what might be constituted as obscene um, Hmm. and in whose eyes. And so, again, my emphasis would be on the seer. You know, what is the projective orientation of the seer onto the scene? For instance, we know that there's a lot of times misogyny in attributing a kind of toxicity or obscenity onto an, the object, but not in the projecting subject. Mm, and so, you know, and I, I agree with Walid though, that of course, in seeing certain images over and over again, it can cultivate a particular kind of viewing of the world. We have to be careful about that. So I don't know. That's a good question. I, I hope we pass the exam, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks thank so much, Rebecca. Th- yes. Thank you for indulging my little indulgence. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.